I want to follow up that last episode by concentrating on some authors and how they address topics that are related to the American South. Now, one of the things that I have not talked about a great deal to this point in the podcast is the topic of slavery across the entire American South. This is, of course, a major topic, and I I push it off until uh, this specific part of my course because I think that it deserves to be concentrated on as its own subject. I don't, I try to, you know, separate all these subjects out and then, and then bring them back together. So we're still going to set that one to the side a bit, but as we start to get into some of these topics and as we start to look at how authors are discussing the region, of course, this is going to be one of the major things that people address and talk about, not just slavery, but also um, the post-slavery period, Reconstruction, and as people you know, learn to interact with each other and to um, try to build the South into something new. Uh, that did not always work, and we will see that when we get to the section on race inside of this podcast. But for right now, again, I want to look at how in this superstructure, as I called it before, you know, using Karl Marx's terminology, I want to look at how in this superstructure people are remembering or misremembering or attempting to actively rewrite history in uh, specific ways that fit how they want to see the American South. Let's get started. As you can probably already tell, I'm not going to do this chronologically. There are other texts and resources out there that will do a chronological examination of literature across the American South. Again, instead, what I would rather do is to do it somewhat topically. I'm not going to cover a lot of topics. This is of necessity of barely short podcasts. I try to make these episodes as short as possible and still convey the information. Uh, but let's go ahead and get started by examining the topic of, again, race. And that claim I made at the in the opening a second ago, wherein people are misremembering the past or actively trying to rewrite it. And where better to go than Margaret Mitchell and Gone with the Wind? Uh, Gone with the Wind is a fairly fantastic account of the American South. Um, it, it plays a sweeping role of capturing what it may have been like to to be alive in Atlanta uh, during the American Civil War, but it also actively tries to rewrite some of that information. Um, it tries to see it in romantic ter- uh, terms in some cases, not all cases. Um, it definitely has its dark side as a novel, uh, but I would say that one of the most active ways in which Mitchell attempts to rewrite the past is through the way in which slavery is remembered. And so I, I've picked this one specific passage. Um, I could pick a whole bunch of them, but I, I think that this one captures the spirit. Mitchell says, and if you have a copy of the, the older edition, the red cover edition, the small paperback one, this is on page 662. Accepting Uncle Tom's Cabin as revelation, second only to the Bible, the Yankee women all wanted to know about the bloodhounds, which every Southerner kept to break down runaway slaves. And they never believed her when she told them that that she had only seen one bloodhound in all of her life. It was a small, mild dog, 
and not a huge ferocious mastiff. They wanted to know about the dreadful branding irons which planters used to mark the faces of their slaves and the cat of nine tails with which they beat them to death. And they evidenced uh, what Scarlet felt was a very nasty and ill-bred interest in slave concubinage. Especially did she resent this in view of the enormous increase in mulatto babies in Atlanta since the Yankee soldiers had settled in the town. Now, this is, again, something of an active rewriting, an active um, misremembering of the past. Yes, of, of course, these you know Yankee women have come into Atlanta after the, the war, and uh, they, they've settled into this location, and Scarlet is you know attempting to engage with them in a nice way. Uh, at this point in the novel, she's been accused by some Southerners of being a little too sympathetic with the Northerners, and you know there are times when she keeps her mouth shut. But again, in this particular passage, you have these Yankee women asking very uh, stereotypical questions of what they believe Southerners to be doing um, as regards slavery. And Scarlet is, you know, sort of contemptuous about it, like, oh, you know, I've never seen a dog before that would go and chase somebody down. And I've never seen anyone brand a slave's face and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so she's, Mitchell herself as an author is turning aside these implements of slavery uh, throughout this particular portion of the text. And there are other aspects of the text where, as well, she turns aside some of these things um, and sort of pulls her character Scarlet away from those ideas. Uh, on the other hand, Mitchell does examine things like the Black Codes, um, and there is a, a discontent for Scarlet's use of these these uh, codes in order to, you know, create workers for her, um, the things that she owns, the land that she owns um, after the American Civil War. So it, it's a mixed bag in this particular case. But again, Mitchell is attempting to see the past in a certain way. She's attempting to read that past um, by effacing some of these details of things that did indeed happen. She's um, limiting them in this particular section. And she's also somewhat insinuating that there's an increase in um, uh, the uh, interactions, sexual interactions between those from the North who occupied the South and the, uh, the former slaves. Now, this is not to say that that did not happen, but it also, in, in implying this in this particular paragraph, um, implies that that did not happen for Southern men. Now let's take an exam. Uh, let's take an examination of that particular claim. So I've just tried to present Mitchell in what I think are fair terms. I don't want to sit here and say that you know something is entirely bad or something is entirely good because I, I think that that's asinine. I think that uh, reality is more complicated than that. And as I've just shown. Uh, Mitchell is something of a mixed bag. She gets some credit on some hands, and she's actively trying to rewrite the past in other ways. Now, the way that I want to present that idea is by examining a firsthand account of what it was like to be a slave woman during this particular time period. If you've listened to the other episodes in the podcast, the other series that I've done, um, you know probably a little bit more about Harriet Jacobs. But I'm going to introduce Harriet Jacobs here because I, I want to put her into conversation with Margaret Mitchell. Uh, so Margaret Mitchell has just, again, implied through her character, Scarlet, that, uh, you know, that these this is something that the Yankees are doing, that they're coming down and they're um, having sexual interactions with, uh, with you know, women, uh, slave women, former slave women in the South as they occupy the territory. But a firsthand account indicates that this is not the case, that... 
those interactions as forcible sexual interactions were taking place uh, prior to the abolition of slavery and, and thereafter as well. But that's, you know, it's a, another topic for another time. Um, but uh, just to briefly summarize Harriet Jacobs, Harriet Jacobs was an African-American slave uh, during the, uh, the prior to the American Civil War. Uh, she earned her freedom. At one point, she escaped. And that's because she had unwanted sexual advances from the man who ended up owning her, Dr. Flint, as she called him in her account. Uh, so th this man attempted to seduce her. He didn't just want to, to rape her. And that's something that did frequently happen. He didn't want to just do that. He wanted to seduce her. He wanted her to want him. Uh, I, you know, sometimes link it because I'm, I'm kind of a Marvel guy. I sometimes link it to uh, the purple man in uh, 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 Jessica Jones, right? He didn't want to just command Jessica Jones. He wanted to have her want him. And it's the same sort of idea. So there are many, many passages I could pick from, from this account, but I, I picked this particular paragraph. And just in case you're curious where it came from, this is from the Signet Classic Slave Narratives. There are four of them, and this is from page 464. But O ye happy women whose purity has been sheltered from childhood, who have been free to choose the objects of your affection, whose homes are protected by law, do not judge the poor, desolate slave girl too severely. If slavery had been abolished, I also could have married the man of my choice. I could have had a home shielded by the laws, and I should have been spared the painful task of confessing what I am now about to relate. But all my prospects had been blighted by slavery. I wanted to keep myself pure, and under the most adverse circumstances, I tried hard to preserve my self-respect. But I was struggling alone in the powerful grasp of the demon slavery, and the monster proved too strong for me. I felt as if I was forsaken by God and man, as if my efforts must be frustrated, and I became reckless in my despair. Now, this does not sound like what Margaret Mitchell said just a second ago. This is, you know, she's sort of turned this aside. Uh, here you have a person in agony who is saying, you know, I wanted to be a good person, but this institution was larger than I. Um, so she had rejected the advances, uh, uh, sometimes the very physical advances, and I would say um, ugly advances of Dr. Flint several times. And he was unrelenting. And his wife absolutely hated Harriet Jacobs because she saw it as Harriet Jacobs' fault. Um, this was a, a common thing during that particular period. The wife had no power whatsoever over her husband, but she did have power over the slaves. And so she would turn her ire to the, the person who, uh, who could not defend herself, in this particular case, again, Harriet Jacobs. So uh, what Jacobs is also referencing here is she made a choice, and that choice was, okay, I do not want to be with Dr. Flint. Um, you know, this is wrong on every level. I'm going to make a desperate choice, and that desperate choice is I'm going to engage in a sexual relationship with another man. And she did that. And in doing that, she became pregnant. And she, in her head, because she was still very young in her teen years, believed that that pregnancy might protect her from Dr. Flint. And instead, it, it made her life so much worse in other ways. Um, this is you know, what caused her to want to ex escape in the first place, because once she finally had kids, um, she had two kids. He attempted to use those kids against her. So again, this is why I would say that Margaret Mitchell is, is misremembering, intentionally 
perhaps, just remembering that past. Because if we look at other writers um, who are writing about the South and from their own experience in the South, we can clearly see that that is not the case. I've just put two authors in conversation with one another, and I've shown that one can problematize the other and that, you know, that Mitchell herself was willingly or no misremembering the past. And then, you know, Jacobs calls that into question. But what I also want to make sure that I do in the, the fairly short time that I have is show that other authors are attempting to negotiate the situation, sometimes in successful ways, sometimes in unsuccessful ways. I'm going to do it um, briefly with three white authors, and then I'm going to present the same situation from a, you know, a different perspective as well. But I, I want to show that you know, in spite of what Mitchell has done, that there are other authors who are attempting um, to, to navigate this territory and to create that, again, what would Jesus do? What would Bayard do sort of situation? One of those authors has uh, been tossed out of some school curriculum uh, in the in the uh, in the past because of the language that he used, and so this is Mark Twain. Um, but I would I would dare to say that if you examine Mark Twain, that Mark Twain is from his moment in history attempting to again enact that. What would Jesus do? He's attempting to show normalized race relations through his particular work in order to give his reader. Um, access to the the kind of outcome that I would say he hoped to see. The particular scene I have chosen for this is uh, one in which uh, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer and, and Jim are on a raft and, you know, they've just had this harebrained escape and, uh, you know, Tom is hurt and they're trying to figure out what to do. And so Jim, this, you know, the, the former slave, the, the one that is now freed, but he's traveling down the river with Huck. Um, says something along the lines of, you know, well, I tell you what, if if the situation were reversed and if, you know, I were in Tom's place and I, I had been hurt, there is no way that I wouldn't say that I want somebody else to come and help, you know, the person who was injured in turn. In other words, like, I you know, I want to think about other people as well. And Huck internally reflects and, and says to himself, and this comes from 301, page 301 in the Penguin Classic Edition of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I knowed he was white inside, and I reckoned he'd say what he did say. So it was all right now, and I told Tom I was a going for a doctor. Now, that <laughs> I could pick from a whole range of different scenes, but I think that this one evokes, again, Mark Twain's purpose. He's attempting to, you know, to navigate this territory and to show um, these interactions in a, a normalized way. Um, this is undoubtedly from a modern perspective, not the way to go about doing it. But, you know, if we're going to study this history and the, the evolving nature of this dialogue, we have to be able to look at what people in the past have done and do it in an unflinching way that allows us to see the efforts that people made uh, in this particular regard. Now, um, you know, whether we, we can accept those or not, that's a totally different story. But we have to, again, be able to examine that space itself. Another person that I want to make sure that I look at in, in regards to this is I want to go back to William Faulkner, you know, and the last one I had mentioned, The Unvanquished. And um, at the very start of this entire novel, uh, we have the character Ringo, and he's hanging out with Bayard, and the two of them have been raised together. And 
Uh, they are they are practically brothers. And Faulkner goes out of his way in order to, to be able to try to show this. And I would say, again, that this is an extension of Mark Twain's project because he's attempting to um, to normalize relations through the novel form itself. And so toward the beginning of the novel, this is on page seven of um, uh, The Unvanquished. I'm going to you know, swap up the, the reading a little bit. So if you go and read it yourself, you may notice that. But, um, but now... But now it was that urgent, even though Ringo was black. He, uh, because Ringo and I had been born in the same month and had both fed at the same breast and had slept together and eaten together for so long that Ringo called Granny, Granny, just like I did, until maybe he wasn't black anymore or maybe I wasn't a white boy anymore. The two of us, neither, not even uh, people any longer. The two supreme undefeated, like two moths, two feathers riding above a hurricane. Say so we were both at it. We didn't see all the others in the area. We didn't really hear what they had to say, so forth and so on. In other words, what Faulkner is attempting to capture here is that the two of them, uh, because of the background, which was not uncommon at this particular time, did not see each other as um, unequal. They, they're very young at this point. Um, this is noted as well, by the way, in Jacobs. Jacobs goes to a great length to talk about how young people of different colors can you know, play together. And Faulkner is making the exact same point. So it's not just a matter of, uh, no, you know, this person said this and this person said that, and this person is right and this person is wrong. Uh, it's nothing quite like that. In other words, again, when we look at the literature itself, it's just not that simple. If I'm discussing this particular situation and this sort of what would you know, Jesus idea, uh, what would Jesus do idea, of course, I have to go to that example par excellence, which was uh, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. And in this particular case, that is really the, the overall function of Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch's job inside the novel and outside the novel is to show its reader the idea of a dignified white man who does not back down from situations, uh, from difficult situations, and who is willing to stand up for what is right in the face of overwhelming odds. Now, you know, again, people read this in you know, high school and whatnot, but as a cultural artifact, that's what I would point to in our study of the culture of the American South. This opens up uh, identity opportunities for white males, because in reading this novel, typically they would identify with the other white males around them. And oftentimes those white males in, in real life would be doing horrendous things or secretly doing horrendous things and sort of inducting, I would dare to say, um, these individuals into the the, um, the racist ideologies that have been going on for generations, uh, dating back until, you know, the, the, uh, the post-Civil War period when these really begin to, to get going. And so Atticus Finch creates that identity opportunity that might otherwise be unavailable to the audience. And that's why uh, Harper Lee's work is really so magnificent, uh, not just for the plot, not just for the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the attempt at justice, not just for the, the sort of innocence of the narrator and so forth and so on, but it is for um, that, that dignity that Finch carries into the novel and to the audience as well. So I'll just pull a little bit from, you know, one of the, the uh, most powerful scenes in the book where uh, Atticus Finch's uh, ward, you know, as, as a lawyer, he, you know, he's, he's fighting for this man, um, is in jail and a mob shows up and they want to break into the jail and, and lynch the person inside. 
Um, so in this particular case, this comes from page 202. Ones and twos, men got out of the cars. Shadows became substance as lights revealed solid shapes moving toward the jail door. Atticus remained where he was. The men hid him from view. He in there, Mr. Finch, a man said. He is, we heard Atticus answer, and he's asleep. Don't wake him up. In obedience to my father, there followed what I later realized was a sickeningly comic aspect of an unfunny situation. The men talked in near whispers. Now, you know, the scene goes on for several pages. I'm not just going to sit here and read the entire thing. But again, there's this quiet dignity in just that, that small interchange there where an Atticus is defending the man that's inside the jail from this horrible action um, that was not uncommon at uh, the, this, this time period. You know, thousands, thousands of people were lynched across the entire South. So this was a well-known phenomenon. It would have been well-known to the readers at the time. And to see a white man defending um, you know, the, the person inside the jail cell against this mob that has shown up uh, was, uh, this is a way in which literature as part of that superstructure challenges some of the assumptions that, uh, that have crept into the, the larger culture itself. And it shows the power that art can have in a situation like this. Actually, before I jump forward, I want to pause here just for a second and consider the overall point that I, I've just referred to. I picked three authors uh, for this, this particular part of the podcast because I want to concentrate on, again, what white writers are attempting to do to navigate this, this uh, overall issue of race in the American South. And I, I did pick those three, but there are a whole host of others that I could have picked as well. Uh, just a couple of quick mentions. Catherine Stockett's The Help uh, is a book that we could examine as well. Uh, I, but I think that, that that book is problematic, especially if you consider some of the biographical details of the author herself and how those manifest into the work. Um, that's, the, yeah, again, that's a problem. We could also look at Carson McCullers' The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. I think that she does a really great job in her novel of, of evoking the anger and outrage that ha, um, has occurred from uh, African-Americans in the face of these, these awful um, institutional ways of, of you know, oppressing them uh, during the particular time period in which McCullers herself is writing. Uh, we might also look at some traditional ones like The Mirror of, of Tradition, literally from Charles Chestnut. Uh, we could look at Joel Chandler Harris's Uncle Remus's uh, tales, his uh, songs and his sayings. Uh, and we, we could think about that in terms of the overall history uh, and the way in which you have a white guy capturing some tales that he himself has heard and uh, is doing so for really some very interesting uh, reasons. Again, those are all the honorable mentions. Now I want to make one dishonorable mention as well. Um, the dishonorable mention is Thomas Dixon and his uh, The Leopard Spots in the Klansman trilogy. This was, uh, it was a bestseller when it came out. And it was a reaction to Uncle Tom's Cabin, which by the way, that's another one that you know not included here. And some people might be saying, why aren't you talking about Uncle Tom's Cabin? But that's a whole other thing. Um, it said, again, uh, Thomas Dixon was a bestseller. So this shows the appetite that uh, people had for sort of anti-abolitionist literature or rewriting of history or reimagining of history. 
um, this was exactly what it sounds like. It, again, the Klansman trilogy, this is not an accident. Uh, Dixon, you know, was a, sort of an, an apologist for, for these ideas. And, um, it, you know, the mention of his work is, uh, I don't know how else to call it, except by a modern term, a, a sort of dog whistle for um, for racist relations between individuals. So, uh, yes, I've concentrated on the, the positive aspects and I've, you know, concentrated on some of the problematic aspects, but there are novels out there and, and works out there written by white authors who are... Um, attempting to enact, for lack of a better way to put it, and just to make it blunt, uh, to enact a racist ideology into um, their their written works. So I, I just want to briefly acknowledge that because I don't want this to sound like, oh, everybody's trying to navigate this and they're just trying to figure it out. That is absolutely not the case. Um, there are a lot of very hard truths that we have to face as a part of this conversation and through the, uh, through the literature of the South. To this point, I've been talking about the white experience as captured in literature and the, the negotiation about the past and the present and how many of these white authors are attempting to misremember or misrepresent or uh, capture an idealized past. But there's an entire other set of authors, of course, that uh, navigate this experience as well, and they have a very different problem. And the problem for them is that oftentimes their voices are not heard or they're not listened to. Of course, I'm talking about the African-American experience itself and how this is represented by many authors across the entire region. Um, I want to actually focus the beginning of this part of the conversation by drawing your attention back to Atticus Finch and you know, how he positively represented uh, the you know, a, a white character in a very hard situation. And I, I want to somewhat contrast that with my Angelo's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Now, I'm just going to briefly touch on a passage from her book and, and then explain the overview and, and kind of connect the dots here. So, Angelo, uh, this runs from 28 through page 30. I'm going to skip a little bit in there. Um, but she starts the scene with, Some families of poor white trash lived on Mama's farmland behind the school. Sometimes a gaggle of them came to the store, filling the whole room, chasing out the air, and even changing the well-known scents. The children crawled over the shelves and into the potato and onion bins, twanging all the time in their sharp voices like cigar box guitars. They took liberties in my store that I never would dare to take. So she's set up the scene there, but then things go south because she describes how, you know, her, her grandmother would negotiate the situation by addressing the adults. Um, the kids would get out of hand. And then one day some kids show up and confront what she calls, uh, who she calls mama, but is her grandmother. And so she, uh, she looked over toward the school, uh, toward the principal's house and to the right at Mr. McElroy's. She was hoping one of those community pillars would see the design before the day's business wiped it out. Then she looked upward toward the school. My head had swung with hers. So it was just about the same time we saw a troop of the poor white trash kids marching over the hill and down by the side of the school. I looked to mama for direction. She did an excellent job of sagging from her waist down, but from the waist up, she seemed to be pulling uh, for the top of the oak tree across the road. Then she began to moan a hymn, maybe not to moan, but the time was so slow and the meter so strange that she could have been moaning. She didn't look at me again. When the children reached halfway down the hill, halfway to the store, she said without turning, sister, go on inside. And so she goes on in the, the situation to describe these children approaching, again, who she calls mama, and the, the children do all kinds of heinous things uh, in the confrontation. The confrontation goes on for 
a couple of pages. I'm not going to sit here and, and read the entire thing, but um, they do all kinds of heinous things. They taunt her. They, you know, they physically taunt her. Um, and the entire time, Mama maintains her dignity. And she maintains her dignity, not only for Angelo, not, not just because Angelo is capturing it, but really for the entire community. So just like with Atticus Finch, you're maintaining dig dignity in the face of indignities, maintaining a, a human presence in the face of dehumanizing content. That's specifically what Angelo has done. And this is, uh, it goes back to the very point I was making just a moment ago, which is that oftentimes these voices struggled to be heard. Angelo was a highly praised individual um, later in her life, and she uh, achieved many accolades as a part of that. But for a time, people weren't listening to these sorts of narratives. They didn't want to listen to these sorts of narratives. It was part of the, the public discourse that uh, people would ignore African-American writers because they were just not taken as seriously as they ought to be. Let's dive in a couple of others and then I'll, I'll do what I did um, on you know the other side of the aisle, which is to kind of give an overview and a suggestion, a couple of suggestions of other authors to look at as well. One thing I want to call attention to immediately is the fact that to this point, the white authors we've been talking about have the luxury of creating uh, fictionalized accounts to be able to negotiate and navigate the situations that they're uh, tending to. On the other hand, uh, a good portion of African-American literature is uh, autobiographical or semi-autobiographical. Um, the latter case I'm, I'm thinking of here, like Black Boy, for example, is an account of Richard Wright's youth uh, that's, that's you know, uh, thinly disguised. But I don't want to go into that particular example. Rather, I would go into um, more, again, autobiographical accounts. Yes, the names in this were changed, but it is exactly what happened to um, this particular person, and that person is Harriet Jacobs. Uh, Harriet Jacobs, again, did not have to create a fictionalized account because she could just tell the horrors of her own life, and it, uh, it would capture the, the things that she had to endure or the things that she witnessed. So I'll just take a passage as an example. Again, this is pulled from the Signet Classic edition of the Classic Slave Narratives, uh, from page 447, just in case you're curious and want to go find it. Um, she once heard her mistress abuse a young slave girl who told her mistress that a colored man wanted to make her his wife. I will have you peeled and pickled, my lady, said the mistress. If I ever hear you mention that subject again, do you suppose that I will have you tending my children with the children of that man? The girl to whom she said this had a mulatto child, of course, not acknowledged by its father. The poor, poor black man who loved her would have been proud to acknowledge his helpless offspring. Now, again, this captures the experience that Jacobs herself witnessed or, or had. You, I mean, there's an entire book there, obviously, so I'm just narrowing it to this one particular passage. But that passage uh, encompasses what happened to individuals, again, during this period, African-American women during this particular period, they were sexually assaulted by their masters. And it's not just her account that captures this. Yes, she captures it firsthand from her own experience. And again, I would direct you to the other part of this podcast, the, the uh, English 231 part. But in this particular case, it, you know, she's witnessing it. She witnesses it. Uh, Frederick Douglass mentions it in his autobiographical accounts as well. 
Um, he, you know, at one point notes that there was a woman who um, the the person who owned her wanted her to have children. So he forced her into a sexual relationship with another one of his slaves because he he wanted her to reproduce because again he he wanted more property let's just you know call it what that that master would have called it in this particular case and these are again ugly facts and ugly accounts but these these voices were sometimes not heard as a part of the southern um uh, engagement on this particular topic they were heard in other locations they were you know read in places like the north or in england but uh southerners would oftentimes ignore them and that's that's very telling as we navigate this territory because one of the other important considerations is uh, we haven't even asked the question but it is worth asking does a writer have to be from the south to be considered southern or to, to be considered part of the southern landscape um i'm thinking specifically of like for example a little bit further down the road the harlem renaissance um many writers in the harlem renaissance attempted to, to navigate the southern experience because that's where you know they had come from where their ancestors had come from um, and they were attempting to understand it or to uh, capture it in a way that they themselves wished to capture it. Okay, so that's that's one example of a firsthand account. Let's uh, jump forward to in the next one. For the next one, I actually want to jump forward to a completely different situation, but that bears some similarities. And uh, whereas Harriet Jacobs represents the experience of being an African-American woman, uh, prior to the American Civil War and uh, the, navigating the difficult territory of sexual assault that took place during that particular time period. Anne Moody, on the other hand, captures the experience of fighting for American civil rights for equal treatment for everyone uh, during the civil rights movement. Uh, in this particular scene, the one I want to focus on, she's uh, doing a sit-in at a lunch counter. And uh, you know this was a, a common thing, and we'll talk about it more when we get to the section on race, the, the podcasts on race. Uh, but let's just jump straight into the scene. So she's at the counter. At noon, students from a nearby white high school started pouring into Woolworths. When they first saw us, they were sort of surprised. They didn't know how to react. A few started to heckle and the newsmen became interested again. Then the white students started chanting all kinds of anti-black slogans. We recalled a little bit of everything. The rest of the seats except the three we were occupying have been roped off to prevent others from sitting down. A couple of the boys took one end of the rope and made it into a hangman's noose. Several attempts were made to put it around our necks. The crowds grew as more students and adults came in for lunch. Okay, again, that goes back to the point I was making before that, um, you know, whereas for many white authors, they have the luxury of, of creating fictionalized accounts, but for Anne Moody and others, they're attempting to put their voice out there to share the lived experience that they had and what they witnessed in, in these fights. It's easy for people to say things uh, like Southerners did at this time period. Um, oh, these are outside agitators. But Anne Moody and others uh, put the lie to that because in this particular case, they're saying, no, you know, this is this is me. I've lived here my entire life. This is exactly what I've seen. Look, my family has been threatened. I just want equal treatment. I'm only sitting at the lunch counter and this is how others have reacted to me. Um, so again, whereas, you know, some people may be attempting to rewrite or navigate or change or uh, cast a certain light on the past. Um, this is an attempt at a firsthand account, and it is definitely part of the literary landscape of the American South in important and meaningful ways. So I could go into more examples of uh, writers who have done exactly what I've, I've just said a moment ago. 
Um, I could talk about Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, different accounts or why we can't wait. I could talk about Malcolm X's account, which is, uh, you know, granted, uh, does not necessarily take root in the South, but it does talk about the lived experience of, of being Black in America during this particular time period and goes back to the question of, you know, does a writer have to be in or from the South in order to be talking about Southern topics? And I would say as, as regards um, the, the account from Malcolm X, um, written by Alex Haley. No, I don't think so. I think that his account definitely 100% speaks to um, this particular experience. But I want to get away from that. It, you know, I've talked about the fact that they did not have the luxury. They did not really have the luxury, but some of some of the writing that took place during this particular time period does capture an attempt to negotiate what it was like to um, to be black and in the United States at this particular time period. Um, one of my favorite examples, and so that's the one I'm going to pick because it, it's such a beautiful poem. Um, and I, on the Poetry Foundation website or uh, poets.org, I think, uh, they used to have a recording of Langston Hughes reading it. And I, I hate that they took it down. Um, I would try to find a way to work it in here, but I, I just absolutely can't. So I'm going to have to read it myself. Um, so let's, let's jump into one of his, his most famous poems. And this is called The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood and human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sun, sunset. I've known rivers ancient dusky rivers my soul has grown deep like the rivers okay one of the reasons aside from the cadence of it aside from the you know the imagery of it aside from um the way it captures a, a diverse range of topics is the ongoing narrative that he establishes in this particular poem um he sees his lived experience as uh, a part of the long chain of human um, experiences that have taken place around rivers. And he links the American experience of African-Americans to that uh, through a particular river. And uh, this is why, you know, he says that I've, I've known rivers, ancient dusky rivers, because he is speaking. I mean, it's in the title. He's speaking of those rivers in order to attempt to say, who am I today? that I have an experience that's similar in many ways to people who have existed in the past. And I think that that's a, an extraordinary thing. And it's a very um, powerful poem, especially when you take into account the, the context itself. Now, he, he claimed in the recording that I referred to just a moment ago that uh, he was riding in a train and he was riding over the Mississippi River um, when this poem came to his mind and he pulled out a letter from his father and he wrote it on the back of the letter from his father. Now, I, I think that um, I think that's almost a little too neat, but that's not to say that it's wrong. It's just that it's such a, a powerful thing that, you know, he's talking about this chain of human events and he just happens to write this poem on the back of a letter that he received from his father, which is part of that chain. But nonetheless, this, this is one of the concerns that African-American writers had is who am I and how do I live in the space that I exist in? And we'll see this when we get to, again, the section on race. Uh, we'll look at Randall Keenan's uh, work and we'll talk about, you know, how he attempts to navigate that. 
But again, I, I want to keep looking at uh, this particular topic through other authors. I'm going to you know, go through a smorgasbord of them right now and just kind of give you an idea of who they are. Again, in an attempt to keep this episode as short as possible, which I don't seem to be doing a very good job of, I want to just give a sort of overview of some other authors that we could discuss regarding this one subject. Um, Ernest Gaines' A Lesson Before Dying is a personal favorite as well. This is a powerful tale of an African-American who has been um, unjustly jailed and is set to be executed in the attempt to recover his humanity as a part of that process. Of course, we could talk about um, other nonfiction accounts as well, but this is uh, more the philosophy of race than anything else, but uh, it's probably even more important for that reason. And again, we'll, we'll come back to these authors later in the podcast series, but uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk and Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery, of course, are a big part of that conversation. We could look at other accounts of, of you know, people who have been enslaved. Uh, Solomon Northrop's uh, 12 Years a Slave, we could look at other accounts of what it was like to, you know, to exist as a person and to just try to navigate this space and to try to get away in some regards from the conversation about race um, in general. And so we would look at something like Nora, Zil, uh, Nora so, excuse me, Zora Neale Hurston. There we go. Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God, uh, which is an attempt to navigate the territory of what it was like to be able to freely uh, choose your partner as an African-American woman. It's a very powerful account uh, that was not widely understood during its time period, but was later recovered. We could look at fictionalized accounts um, that have powerful, powerful metaphors in them, like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. By the way, not to be confused with The Invisible Man, which is a very, very different thing. Uh, we could look at uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved, which is a, a very powerful uh, fictionalized account of... of a particular woman and the drastic measures that she took in order to protect her children, which if you've never read it or don't intend to read it, I'm at least going to share. This is pulled from a true story. And that story is that when the woman was going to be recaptured uh, or thought she was going to be recaptured, uh, she attempted to kill her children because she wanted to protect them. That was the only way that she knew that she could protect them from the horrors that she herself had experienced. We could look at uh, someone like Sojourner Truths, um, Ain't I a Woman, which may or may not be exactly what she said. Uh, that's a whole other story unto itself, but a powerful account of you know, her firsthand experience. Again, there are just endless, endless accounts that we, uh, we could dig into. I've only begun to scratch the surface here, um, but I want to share this with you because as a part of trying to understand the American South, you know, if you pick any given topic, there's a, there are a wide range of authors talking about that topic, and you have to be able to look at it from all sides. You can't say, I read Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now I understand everything there is to say about, you know, the experience of race in the, the American South. That is absolutely not the case. You, um, If you really, truly want to understand it, you have to understand it again from all sides. Um, and that's what I've attempted to, to reveal here. So I need to go ahead and wrap this thing up because at this point I'm getting close to the 45 minute mark and that's just, oh, that's too long for a podcast. I wish I could cut some things out, but uh, I, I think that this does a pretty thorough job of exploring how one given subject has a, a diversity of voices. Um, people from all across the entire spectrum who are trying to talk about you know one thing and uh, in vastly different ways. And I hope that 
what I've done here can reveal to you that the South is not just one, you know, one uh, approach, right? That there are different approaches and that they, they have different things going on. Um, but I've left out a whole bunch of other authors I wish I could talk about. Um, my original goal was, of course, to pick a couple of different subjects, but I got so so invested in this one, and especially since it's going to be something that we focus on a little bit later in the class, uh, that I, you know, I kind of got lost in it. But I am going to give honorable mentions to those others and at least say, hey, these are some other authors that are associated with the South. Uh, W.J. Cash's The Mind of the South is, is uh, widely considered a um, an important book for the American South, and it's also considered a controversial book. So, you know, tread with care. Uh, John Shelton Reed is local to North Carolina. Uh, he's a, a self-proclaimed dixiologist, uh, there we go, a sociologist um, associated with the uh, UNC system. I believe he's retired at this point, but his his book, My Tears Spoiled My Aim, was a really fantastic uh, set of short Short essays that dealt with the American South. Uh, Rick Bragg as well, all over but the Shouten. You know, this is about the experience of growing up in the South. Um, but then there are other voices, again, that I, I've, you know, sort of passed over or let go of that I think are important. Uh, Jane Toomer's Kane, for example. I wish I could have worked that in here. Uh, Timothy B. Tyson did a really uh, excellent job of telling the powerful story of Emmett Till and the blood of Emmett Till. I cannot recommend that book enough. It is a wonderful book. And then we have more modern voices as well that uh, you know I, I hope to return to later in the podcast or at some other point um, as a part of this podcast series. But you know, voices like Angie Thomas uh, and her "The Hate That You Give." Uh, I this is not necessarily a part of the American South, but again, it does capture some of the important questions that people are facing these days. And I, by the way, if you read that one, I would say please read that book in conjunction with Michelle Alexander's "The New Jim Crow." I think that those two books must be read together to uh, give yourself a more full understanding of the uh, the experience of, 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 by the way, just race across the entire nation at this point. Okay, that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, the next episode is going to pick up the topic of gender, and we're going to start to examine what uh, what gender roles apply across the entire South. Now, in order to start that discussion, I'm going to give you some sociological definitions. If you want to get a jump start in that, and if you're not a part of my class and you just happen to be listening to this uh, before you listen to the next episode, I I want to highly recommend that you uh, familiarize yourself with Richard Wright's short story, The Man Who Is Almost a Man. Not only is that a nice bridge from what we're talking about right here, um, it heads the entire conversation that we'll we'll have about gender. Okay, I look forward to... uh, See you in the next episode. Thank you for hanging out with me so long in this one. Um, Again, I I hate that I had to skim through so much information, but at the same time, I love that I got to skim through so much information because I hope it's given you an overview of the complexity of literature uh, in this region. 